The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or Reverend C.T. Vivian or Congressman John Lewis. to the show. My guest for the full hour is Dr. Bill Honigman as he heads to a very different political convention during the pandemic. Dr. Bill Honigman, also known as Dr. Bill, is an emergency room physician recently retired after practicing for over 35 years in Orange County. He has been active in politics since his youth and is currently an organizer for the grassroots group Progressive Democrats of America, acting as California State Coordinator and Orange County Chapter Leader, and is a coordinator for PDA's National Healthcare Human Rights Issue Organizing Team. In this capacity, he advances healthcare as a human right and an advocate for a single-payer expanded and improved Medicare for all system. Dr. Bill is as well a longtime Democratic Party activist. He was a delegate to previous Democratic National Conventions, a former Democratic Club president, is now a county central committee member and a California Democratic Party delegate, and serves as the Southern California Vice Chair of the Senior Caucus of the California Democratic Party. Dr. Bill also serves on the steering committee for physicians for a national health program, California. We are fortunate to have him speak the full hour as we head into the political convention season, a season made most extraordinary by the pandemic and social justice upheavals, the likes of which we have not seen for a very long time. Dr. Bill Honigman comes to us today at his home in Tustin Foothills. Welcome back to this show, Dr. Bill Honigman. Thank you. Thank you so much, Claudia. It's terrific to talk with you. You certainly sound like you're staying safe and healthy, and, and that's what counts. So great to be back. Okay, thank you. Well, we're all trying. Orange County isn't making it easy, though, I must say. I'm reminded of that every press conference I attend virtually in the local setting here. Well, Dr. Bill, you're retired now, but certainly your colleagues still in the trenches are reporting back, I'm sure, a lot of stories. What stands out to you about what they're experiencing in this pandemic? Well, you might think that it's very straightforward that way, that, that I would have those type of connections. But actually, you know, I'm social distancing, and that means I don't have a lot of the connections that I used to have. I hear, like everyone else does, these incredible stories of people working on the front lines. Uh, for example, I have a nephew who is a respiratory therapist. Oh, and my goodness. As you can, yeah, as you can well imagine. And where is dealing, he? He's up in the Central Valley. Um, oh, my goodness. He's dealing with some of the worst cases, you know, that end up on ventilators and that kind of thing uh, of this COVID virus. So it's extremely serious. I think it's 
uh, much worse than most of us imagined at first. And uh, in terms of, of the, the possibilities for pain, suffering, and, and death itself, and, and the effect that it's having on families too. But those, certainly those frontline workers like my nephew, like the nurses and, and doctors in the emergency setting especially, I'm sure it, it should be at least the highest priority that uh, folks having to do that kind of work are well taken care of and provided for and have the opportunity to stay as safe as possible while they do that. Does he say anything about immediate proximate kinds of resistance to better measures to be practiced the way we are in Orange County or is he finding that his local community supports him at least in what they do as individuals for the community? Well, I think he, he doesn't have a lot of complaints in that way. We certainly have heard of hospitals right here in Orange County that, you know, where their staff are complaining that they're not provided adequate uh, personal protective equipment, that's the PPE, uh, their staffing hours and how many patient assignments they're given, you know, throughout this uh, period of intense, well, that's why they call it, right, intensive care unit. So right. very intensive care that they have to give to patients means that you know they should not be uh, stressed to deal with too many patients at a time. So there's staffing issues. So that's the kind of thing that you want in any certainly in any community hospital setting where they're not strained to the point where they're not able to provide good care for the patients or at a tremendous risk themselves. So. In the course of your talking about what progressive Democrats of America are advancing in the way of a, a universal healthcare program, might, maybe first give us the thumbnail of what your best label for capturing the kind of system you're advocating for and what are like the most salient parts of that as we talk about what is going on in the body politic presently. So. There's no doubt in my mind, at least, that the COVID-19 is itself a giant wake-up call on a political basis. It's a wake-up call to the fact that our healthcare system is completely inadequate. Uh, so many people fall through the cracks. It was back when I was in practice, and I, I would see them, people in the emergency room who couldn't see a doctor or weren't getting adequate care. Uh, would end up in the ER, our beds were filled with uh, mental health uh, patients, especially and, and homeless folks. So of a whole range of social services that are required really to make sure that, that people stay healthy. And we were doing a really poor job of that. And the other intersection, the, the giant wake-up call is in climate change, is in rising global temperatures that are going to result in even more of these pandemics and toxic exposures. So to me, as someone who's, you know, been in both healthcare and a bit of a political junkie, um, to me, that means both uh, Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. Actually, Medicare for All is part of the Green New Deal, but that's what we need to really get our hands around these critical issues of both health and climate. Uh, we're going to need that kind of political focus and I'm hoping, of course, as I always do, that we are making that change in hearts and minds, taking it to the Democratic Convention, so moving forward and making progress on these issues. Because frankly, you know, our lives depend on it, right? It's like they say, 
vote like your lives depend on it because they do. So that's what we have to do is to um, push this narrative because that's what we're in need of now. And COVID-19 is just the uh, perfect example or wake up call for that. We'll unpackage a bit about what's in play with the upcoming conventions, but I want to talk still generally about the body politic responding to the pandemic. And you've been, Bill, Dr. Bill, at this a long time. And I'd like to know from your grassroots experience, now are you experiencing maybe there's new people joining? What are they bringing to the organization, to your movement? So it's pretty clear that we've had a, a big shift uh, right here in Orange County, right? Really. We all know about a blue wave and we know how uh, we flipped congressional districts in 2018, elected uh, good folks like uh, oh, Katie Porter and Harley Ruda and Mike Levin to Congress. So you have to ask yourself, you know, why did that happen? And some people will actually point to Donald Trump getting in the White House as you know, motivating them to get outdoors, out in the street, out at the women's marches. Um, but actually, there's been a gradual demographic shift here in Orange County where we have a younger, more diverse population. And that's brought out a whole lot of people to actually get engaged because, like we said, their lives depend on it. The future depends on it. And so the younger demographic has more uh, at risk in terms of their future. And we saw it with a movement, a populist movement like the one for Bernie Sanders. And, you know, I am a delegate uh, coming up to the convention for uh, Bernie because uh, Bernie was all about those issues of concern for our future and that we really are critical to make progress on. Otherwise, we have no idea how many more people are going to be left kind of in the wake of the next pandemic and other things coming our way with climate change. So, Dr. Bill, you're talking about the White House driving some political activism, but are you also seeing an, an additional increment of engagement due to the pandemic pressures revealing the shortcomings of healthcare delivery in every sector? Absolutely. So, you know, the way I'm inclined to look at it, I think a lot of people like me who, who are uh, engaged and, and want others to get engaged, is that we're looking at issues of, of peace and social justice. We're looking at issues that are existential threats. What is threatening us at this point? Because those are the most immediate issues to focus on. So, you know, we've come to realize that climate is an existential threat, almost like nuclear war, where climate could create these uh, kind of a nuclear holocaust kind of scenario if we don't do something to reduce the global warming that's, that's going on. And what do we have at, with, on the climate clock? Like 10 years at most to significantly reduce our use of fossil fuels. But this uh, pandemic brings out our health. And that's why our founders wrote in important documents, you know, phrases like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Because when your life is being threatened, whether it's by a virus or a toxic exposure, or, you know, for that matter, uh, violence in the streets, gun violence, that kind of thing, those are existential threats. And so we're really faced with that and, and compelled to do something about it. So I think that that's the drive at the moment. And then you have, of course, the injustices uh, like 
social injustice, you know, peace and social justice. I always say you don't have social justice unless you have economic justice. And that's what we've seen driving the whole discussion of race and the inequities that we have in the wealth gap in this country. And that's driving the economic injustice argument that results in social injustice. And like they say, no justice, no peace. Until we grapple with these issues, we won't have peace. And you're seeing that now in the street. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. My guest is Dr. Bill Honigman, emergency physician in Orange County, now retired, and still a healthcare activist with the Progressive Democrats of America and a delegate coming up to in the Democratic Convention that will be held. We'll get to all of that in, a, in just a bit. So I guess because you're tying in so much of your addressing the pandemic with climate change calamities too, I guess, do you think that there, and just briefly to answer this, is if people are getting used to looking at daily statistics on the pandemic trends, the IC, the intensive care unit enrollments, the positivity rate, and the hospitalizations, new cases confirmed, deaths, those things, maybe that there is a way to slide in another graph that shows climate stats as they're changing from, from day to day or week to week kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, what do they say? It's like, um, you know, put a frog in a pot of water and, and turn it on to boil right. and, you know, it will get cooked because they can't tell the temperature's getting too hot to, to affect it. So that's kind of like the situation we're in with climate. This current a novel uh, coronavirus is just one of uh, quite a few coronaviruses. You know, there's the uh, SARS uh, virus, the MERS virus, there was Ebola before those two. So uh, how much of that is caused actually by the rising global temperatures already? And are we just on a continuum of natural occurrences, kind of freak natural occurrences that we may not be ready for? I mean, the, the ones we usually think about are those catastrophic events, you know, like a hurricane or floods and fires and and drought and famine. But, you know, those more subtle ones may be toxic releases of toxic uh, chemicals. um, Well, like the methane leaks, like like reporting that like leakage of some toxic kind of substance, or if we're going to look at our plotting temperature spikes that are you know, how they're trying. But it just seems to me that maybe as the public is more and more attuned to the pandemic numbers, if there is a way to do that. So I, I just wanted to put that yeah. out there. Well, well that, here's, here's yes. an easy one. I mean, if it might, uh, an easy one is we, we all heard that recently there was a recording of a, a daytime temperature in the Arctic Circle oh my of goodness. 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I know. Oh, so, I mean, how scary is that? It was pretty the, scary. Yeah, the permafrost, the uh, frozen tundra becomes unfrozen. Uh, what kind of uh, creatures does that release into the atmosphere that can then go on to cause a new pandemic? I mean, uh, climate scientists have predicted this for a long time. And so I think that the lessons to be learned from this pandemic have to translate into the next ones. 
um, because it's going to take some time for us to kind of undo uh, all of that, you know, or at least correct the course that we're on in terms of global warming. So the adage about primary general election season politics is once a nominated presidential, once a candidate becomes nominated, it pulls the candidate to the center from whatever direction they've been tacking. But as far as the Democrats are concerned, it's interesting in 2020, the presumed nominee, Joe Biden, is now tacking not to the center, but to the left. How do you understand this is developing? Uh, and tell us who in the high profile body politic, who in health science and healthcare is expressing what the progressive Democrat of America sentiments are? Who's, who's expressing it the best? Well, first of all, isn't that a terrific thing? You know, we have one, we have two major political parties in this country, really effectively only two political parties. One is wholly owned and operated by uh, corporate interests and private interests. That's the Republican Party. The Democratic Party, on the other hand, it's kind of been split. There's there's corporate Democrats, or you might call them establishment Democrats, and then there's the progressive Democrats, or your more populist Democrats. I mean, you have someone like Bernie Sanders who ran as an independent, you know, but caucuses with the Democratic Party, so he could run in the Democratic primary, and he could really talk about all of the issues of importance uh, for so many of us who consider ourselves to be progressive or populist Democrats. So the question now becomes, is Joe Biden likely to win over some of the Republicans and Trump voters as much as he could, say, inspire, we presume Bernie Sanders uh, does or would, inspire those who are not engaged to become engaged and actually encourage a, a, a bigger voter turnout? Uh, I don't like to look at it as kind of linear politics, center right, center left, somebody pulling someone to the center or, you know, to the left or right. I see it as, as big and big tent, kind of like we're right, left, meet around back. And if we all have to have clean air and clean water to drink. And uh, we all want to see our kids do better in life, uh, perhaps than the opportunities that we have ourselves. Um, we should all want uh, everyone to have health care because it's, it's certainly a value to ourselves, our families, our communities, that people are not suffering or dying uh, preventable deaths. So those things are not, you know, right versus left or right versus wrong. And, and so I think it's a great thing. I agree with you. I think we, uh, Joe Biden is coming over to the progressive way of thinking, but I still have reservation about that. So we'll see how it goes. So when you bring up the big tent metaphor, I guess maybe it's like, who's going to have the center pole <laughs> in the tent? Who, I mean, which, which part of the party is going to be in that huge tent holding the, the largest sort of, who will have the most clout when we talk about those planks? in the platform going down, which are still a work in progress. We'll talk about that. But are there any new voices, Dr. Bill, that are moving out and talking about what the progressive Democrats for America have been talking about as Medicare for all? Any, anybody new joining us that's been, who's got it down, who's got, who's messaging effectively? Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's terrific to see those, uh, those new voices and, 
Uh, some of them are much younger, of course, kind of new on the scene. Uh, we all know about the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, uh, Naya Presley. Wonderful that they're making a splash that way. Here in Orange County, I think a lot of us are very happy with Katie Porter. Uh, has, has turned out to be a terrific spokesperson on behalf of kind of working people, working moms, and she's herself, a single mom with three kids. You know, it's terrific. Some of the ones you don't hear as much about okay, are yeah. actually big champions for progressive causes are, for example, uh, Ro Khanna in Northern California. Yes, um, in Silicon really, Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. A terrific representative and actually... Silicon Valley is is turning out to be, you know, an incredibly progressive part of the country, you know, willing to pay more in taxes so they get more in services. And that includes, you know, better schools, better roads, better parks, you know, all of that. Another one is uh, Pramila Jayapal. Uh, Pramila is the author of uh, the new Medicare for All bill. We should say in Seattle, Washington. That's right, from Seattle. so, so she's, you know, definitely a rising star as well. And, and isn't it great to see younger and more diverse uh, representatives carrying the banner? Not just, you know, Bernie. Some people said, oh, Bernie's too old. He's too curmudgeon you know, that kind of thing. So terrific people. I would say even locally, you've got some terrific progressive Democrats even. Uh, you know, people like Dr. Jose Moreno on the city council in Anaheim. Wonderful uh, a leader for social causes in his working class district of Anaheim. Uh, you've got Ada uh, Bruseno, uh, the uh, chairwoman of the local Democratic Party, uh, Betty Valencia, the challenger for the Orange City Council. So we have rising stars, and it's a terrifically diverse group. And that, to me, gives me great optimism as well. So the cost is always how... Medicare for all is challenged. So Dr. Bill, how do you account fully, like, uh, in the, because it's hypothetical what the costs are, how do you account fully so that the, the value to society, the benefits of healthcare that come through in a complex healthcare system investment? So there's really two ways to look at that. Um, cost issues in, in a a single payer, what we call a single payer system, okay. uh, like Medicare. The VA, for example, is a single payer system. Canada, Britain, those are the ones that, that we're most familiar with. It cuts out the middleman in, in healthcare, meaning uh, mostly big insurance and big pharma. Uh, it gets those costs under control. A traditional Medicare operates at a 2% administrative cost. whereas uh, private insurance operates closer to 20%. That's tenfold higher waste, basically. You can eliminate the waste. Um, If you had a a business, you know how people always say government should be run more like a business? Well, government is doing a really effective job like a business when it comes to Medicare uh, right now. And Medicare needs to be improved and expanded too, there's no doubt about it. But which business would you rather have? The one that runs at, with an overhead of 20% or one with 2%? So that's what we're looking at. It actually saves money. What we're doing right now is way too inefficient. Um, and it's also filled with opportunities for fraud and abuse. Because the system is so complex, 
There are a lot of hidden backroom deals that go on, negotiations between hospitals and insurance companies, uh, something called a pharmacy benefits manager. It was just invented in the last decade or so. Wow. Um, these are middlemen, basically, that are skimming off the top. And when we're talking about something human need, like healthcare, you know, it's really immoral. They're taking away profits that should be put into the system to provide care for people. So the real question is not how do we account for the cost? It's how are we going to account for the savings? Because there's so much money to be saved. All the scientists, all the economic scientists agree on this subject. Scientists, social scientists, economists who have studied uh, healthcare financing, hundreds of them, I think it was 250, signed a letter last summer saying that they agreed a Medicare for all system would cost less, not more, than what we're currently paying for healthcare. And then there's models all around the world, of course, and most of us are familiar with that, that we're paying twice as much as every other industrialized country. And for that, we're getting uh, poor results. So Medicare for all makes sense, it makes dollars and cents kind of sense, and it also uh, will save lives. And that's why it's way past time that we move to that kind of system, and even more apparent now with this current health challenge that we have with the pandemic. Well, and with the, the current health challenge too, and, and also it was a, a pre-existing societal condition is though that the White House is pushing out the, the public charge rule, the work rule for Medicaid that the White House is pushing out and along with the undocumented demographic in our country that lots of people are falling through the cracks. You're talking about people paying more for the conventional health insured healthcare delivery, but it's only a percentage. So Bill, talk about how this Medicare for all though is capturing more people that are right now, they're sort of bobbing in the wake of the, the work rule and the public charge rules coming out of Medicaid, of Medicaid being pulled out from underneath various demographics in the country by the White House. Sure, absolutely. And uh, Claudia, that's where uh, you have to think, what does the term Medicare for all actually mean? Okay, so if we take a system like Medicare, which does provide a high degree of high standard of care, and even a reasonable reimbursement to providers, doctors don't usually refuse Medicare, they might refuse Medicaid, which is called Medi-Cal in California, yes. but they don't refuse Medicare. That's what most of us you know, 65 and older have Medicare. And guess what? That's who most of the people who need a lot of medical care are. Okay. So Medicare itself is a high standard and then it has to be for all. So it needs no qualifiers based on your income, on your immigration status. It does not. Right. It, it, it is universal in the, the strictest right. sense. Okay. That's right. So that's how we deal with it. That's the for all part of Medicare for all. And it can't be those who want it. It those who can afford to pay for it. You know, it needs to be for all. And the perfect example is a public health crisis like the one we're in. This virus doesn't care how much or how little money you make or if or you're you were born in this country or not. Yeah. yeah. You know, it really is injustice anywhere, creating a, a threat to justice everywhere, as Dr. King said. The virus understands that. We don't. Our healthcare system 
doesn't understand that we're all in this together. And if any person comes down with the disease, that's a threat to the rest of us too. So that's reason enough right there why it has to be for all. I mean, for example, what's the biggest critique on our response to this virus? It has to be testing, right? So if you don't test, you don't know the extent of the problem that you have. So we don't know how many people in this country have the virus because we're not doing enough testing. All the countries that did well and handled this virus you know, with better outcomes than we have had early and much more prevalent uh, degree of testing in the population. That's why you mentioned earlier in the program following these statistics on uh, COVID-19. Right. The one I think is the most meaningful is the hospitalizations, daily hospitalizations. And here in Orange County, you can go to OC COVID and look at those numbers. But why I like hospitalizations as opposed to the amount of testing that's done is that we know everybody who's admitted to the hospital for COVID-19 was tested for COVID-19. Everybody was. So there's no doubt there how many people in that subset of the population. And we also know that that's a high need group. And we know that as a community, if we don't get a handle on that, that the number of people being hospitalized, we will very rapidly run out of resources for dealing with the problem with hospital beds, with intensive care unit beds and ventilators. So that's why that number is so critical to watch. The way it ties in with Medicare for All is when you have a Medicare for All system, you can then do the testing, the contact tracing, the treatment that you need then it's a publicly decided decision-making process as opposed to private corporate interests who may not find it profitable to do those things. And I think that's really the problem with our current leadership in Washington. We all want to kind of personalize and say, oh, it's just Donald Trump, you know, perhaps, or Mitch McConnell. But really, the, the problem with the leadership in Washington is that it's so invested in the private corporate model of doing business of all kinds, that there is no capacity to deal with a public issue like a public health emergency, such as the pandemic that we're in. So you're bringing up an interesting point here in all of this is that, do we also understand that there is another, it's not an intangible, it's a pretty tangible benefit that maybe with a Medicare for all, people that are being attended to more broadly threats, we're also going to be getting more public health data, data that would make for such important policy decisions around how all institutions respond to any, any development. Isn't that valuable too? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I've been uh, for years giving talks on the differences between the American versus the Canadian uh, healthcare systems and <laughs> And you mentioned at the start that besides progressive Democrats in America, I'm also involved in Physicians for a National Health Program, and they have wonderful materials on that. They actually were originated from the Harvard School of Public Health. So these are a lot of folks with not just MD degrees, but MD, PhD degrees. So they are, you know, academics in healthcare and study, you know, compile data and study it and come up with results. Now, you and I, you know, we believe in science, right? Like I was even a grad student there at UCI myself in the biochem department. 
before I went to med school. So we believe that when scientists tell you something, it's because it's fact-based, at least as close to fact as is possible, given that they still have to collect evidence for the facts that they then come up with. But it's evidence-based, it's fact-based. You know, that's the way we practice medicine, or supposedly in this country, is the evidence-based approach. So for example, Canada, with its single-payer system, the public pays doctors and hospitals, not a private entity like an insurance company. So what does that mean? It means it's open to public scrutiny. In Canada, I can tell you, we know exactly what doctors are paid in Canada. We do not know what doctors are paid overall in the United States. These payment schedules happen by way of negotiations behind closed doors in this country. In Canada, it's, it's open, it's public, it's transparent. So they have much more clarity, too. They compile the data, they release it for uh, the public to see, and listeners are welcome to go to pnhp.org. That's Physicians for National Health Program, pnhp.org, and you'll see lots of terrific data from other countries that shows that it's so much more apparent where the system has problems, and you can then fix those problems, whereas in our country, it's all a giant jumbled mess because of all of these third-party payers, insurance companies, pharmacy benefit managers, all those things that were invented by our capitalist system. In this case, it's a human need, and that means the public should be involved in the decision-making how we allocate resources. We've created what are called healthcare deserts in this country. So in the inner cities and rural areas, those are not marketable areas. There's no great business interest in marketing a hospital or a clinic in rural cities or in inner areas that, that have, uh, say, lower income base. So that created these healthcare deserts. That's and I just big, want to say about that yeah. too, Bill, that mm-hmm. Dr. Bill, is that the healthcare deserts are going to open up with changes in visas that are being approved in the federal agencies. That the visas that were issued to various international physicians, so that mm-hmm. where the, the condition was that they would be delivering healthcare in some of those deserts. And if those visas are discontinued, then that de- healthcare desert situation is going to open up even further. So I, I wanted right. to slot that in there while you're talking about that. But so. Um, yeah. So that really kind of highlights the economic injustice on, on a regional basis. It's not just region, it's also race. You know, we've all heard that communities of color are having a harder time having more cases of uh, infection and more people dying as a result of COVID-19 in in our black and brown communities. And that has a great degree to do with these creation of healthcare deserts and, you know, not being particularly marketable for private corporate interests. And so the expression is, I've heard said, is that uh, it has more to do with racism than it does with race. And that's because there are institutional economic injustices based on region and race that have created these healthcare deserts and worse outcomes in communities of color. So let's talk then. The parties are very different about their party platform planks in dealing with healthcare. I'm going to quickly read a summary 
where the Republican Party is taking it word for word what were in their planks from the 2016 convention. I'm going to quote for folks to know here. This isn't me talking about. I'm quoting the Republican Party platform on healthcare. Any honest agenda for improving healthcare must start with repeal of the dishonestly named Affordable Care Act of 2010. Obamacare, it weighs like the dead hand of the past upon American medicine. It imposed a Euro-style bureaucracy to manage its unworkable budget, busting conflicting provisions. It has driven up prices for all consumers. It is time to repeal Obamacare. I'm going to quickly go to the one more part of that. Uh, in quotes, the Republican healthcare convention platform plank to ensure vigorous competition in healthcare and because cost awareness is the best guard against over utilization, we will promote price transparency so customers can know the cost of treatments before they agree to them. Consumer choice is the most powerful factor in healthcare reform. That is the Republican Party platform. And now we are in the final stages of the Democratic platform planks being negotiated. So uh, instead of recommending replacing the current public-private healthcare system with the single payer, it's apparently the paper negotiating the Democratic Party healthcare platform plank is recommending building on the Affordable Care Act with a public option. So to the extent you're aware of what is being negotiated now, I mean, there, there's some things that are being released how do you respond to the movement afoot going into the convention, which the convention will be August 17th to August 20th? Right, yeah, it's supposed to be mid-July now. It's been pushed to mid-August. Um, so that was a kind of a, a fun exercise, although it, it could make uh, some of us a little dizzy or nauseous, frankly, reading the, uh, directly from the Republican platform. I, I, th I found the only thing missing was at the very end, it, it didn't say with liberty and justice for all. <laughs> you know? um, but, but I think that really this, the sad part is, is that in some sense, they're right. Affordable Care Act is really almost misnamed. It's more like a wish name than it is the actual name. And Republicans should know this because they actually invented it. It was the mandate model of Richard Nixon and the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and then originally. Governor Romney of, of Massachusetts. Yeah, so it became right? Romney Care before it became Obamacare. But still, you know, even in places like Massachusetts, what we knew going into it even 10 years ago was that a lot of people still fell through the cracks. They did not end up with an insurance plan, even though one was uh, offered to them on an exchange of some kind. It was still too expensive for them therefore unaffordable care act and or they didn't pay fines if they were if they were made to pay told they were going to have to pay a fine they just wouldn't pay those fines and they weren't put in jail because they didn't pay the fines you know so a lot of ways that was an intermediary step uh, between what we had before the affordable care act and what we really need which is medicare for all and you remember, it did do a couple of things, like it did allow young people to stay on their family plan uh, until age 26 instead of 18, right? So that covered some more people. It was supposed to expand uh, Medicaid, like Medi-Cal here in California. We did expand it. A whole lot of the red states did not. So how do you do that? Well, 
whatever is considered a poverty level could be increased so it catches more of what we call the working poor where people aren't make they're making too much money to qualify for medicaid uh, but not enough money to have any to pay for a health plan so the red states uh, kind of listening to their own propaganda said no that would make it more expensive not less expensive i don't know how they how they decide that but frankly my problem now with the so-called incrementalists is that if they want to move to a public option like uh, Pete Buttigieg's uh, Medicare for all who wanted type thing, uh, that would be an option for a public Medicare to opt into it somehow. The problem then is it still leaves too many of these intermediaries in place. So the private health insurers that have negotiated contracts with, with employers across the country, I mean, the very most obvious thing that happened with this pandemic and the economic recession is if you lost your job through no fault of your own, you know, employers just shut down their operations. Guess what? You lost your health care in the middle of a health care crisis. It's not a gold standard if you don't have it anymore. That's right. Exactly. So that just shows that there's so many failings in the present system, even with the reforms that we made with the Affordable Care Act, that we really have to move ahead and we have to take a big step, not a baby step, like say the public option. Now, that's a battle we're having right now in setting up the platform for the Democratic Convention, but I think you're seeing real progress. Um, okay. You know, Bernie Sanders did get a lot of delegates elected and, and we are going to this convention and, and submitting a platform requests and demands that are being listened to and there, there's good evidence. So as the delegates will be participating in a virtual situation at the convention August 17th through the 20th that would, will be housed in Milwaukee, talk about how you think this is all going to work out with respect to negotiating the language with, with this party platform plank about healthcare? So I would say that it's a mixed bag, <laughs> um, like everything, right? So, <laughs> uh, you know, I've been to uh, multiple conventions now, as you mentioned, and usually you take all that physically to the convention with signs, t-shirts, with, you know, buttons, with uh, reporters holding microphones in your face and all of that. Right. Uh, so you're, you're actually making a statement and feeling like you're, you're getting represented. Unfortunately, now that we're going virtual, there's a tendency like, like you're seeing with kind of city and county governments to shut down the, the small d democratic process here so that things end up uh, a little more exclusive instead of inclusive. Well, and it was even so, more complicated than that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. that in the, on our Irvine City Council just this week, one of the council members virtually participating in the session, you could see where his contributions, his influence was diminished by not being right there. So it's not, not even in the hierarchy where the delegates may be considered an, on a kind of a lower rung than party, the party officials, but even a city council member is diminished by that. So it's, it's a very important kind of change in how you're going to be doing business. So back to that point, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, absolutely. So, so in a virtual setting, we should be much more worried about losing our democratic process, small d democratic process, and, and our voice as you know, just concerned and engaged individuals 
On the other hand, we've seen kind of more focus, I think, through social media as well as a whole lot of virtual meetings taking place where, you know, now geography is not so much an issue. You don't have to get a meeting room. You know, we've got these virtual meeting rooms now. So you we are. Can, are you pretty busy already? Yeah, yeah. Like my day is filled with these virtual meetings. So um, Across so the, the country or within like the state delegates or any, the, and name it? Yeah, especially the state delegation, okay. but really across the country. Wow. And, and I was going to say, to his credit, that Joe Biden invited Bernie Sanders to create uh, yes. issues task forces. And so that was an opportunity for some of us, you know, what we might call grassroots folks, to get in there and help negotiate issues positions. I would say, you know, for climate, it was actually pretty good. You know, a lot of progress on healthcare, not so much. Of course, maybe I'm, I'm being pickier about that because healthcare is kind of my thing. But moving from what the task forces came up with and that invitation from Joe Biden to Bernie Sanders to bring in uh, the voices behind uh, Bernie's campaign, I think we're coming out with a platform. Like I said, there's evidence now, at least, that there was an amendment introduced the other day into the healthcare plan that recognized that Medicare for all is the goal. And that has not been in the 2016 platform. So we are making progress in terms of the language. If you look at polling overall, of course, it's almost hard to call yourself a Democrat now if you're not for Medicare for all. I mean, you know, we have a bill in, in the House of Representatives with 118 co-sponsors. I mean, that's much more than half the, uh, the overall Democratic delegation. Usually you need about 100 to get that, to get a bill then through the committee process for a vote on the House floor. That's not being done, unfortunately. And Speaker Pelosi actually has that power to let the bill come up for a vote. So a lot of us are, are kind of trying to push uh, Nancy Pelosi to let that bill come to the House floor for a vote, like she has done for quite a few other House bills recently, and, and especially uh, since the pandemic and the need for emergency services and relief, economic relief to people during this uh, economic downturn. So, so some of us have coined a, an expression or a hashtag, uh, pass the damn bill, because we're, we have a bill for Medicare for all, and that's what we're trying to get Congress to do right now, is to pass the damn bill. So, you know, that's the kind of pressure we're trying to put on establishment Democrats that, hey, if you're a Democrat and you're not for Medicare for all, you might as well call yourself a Republican at this point because they're well, and that's the dynamic going yeah. into the commit the convention for those of you who've just joined us my guest for the full hour is dr bill Huntigman, retired emergency physician in orange county and healthcare activist with the progressive democrats of america at the cusp of convention season talking about some of the negotiation between the bernie sanders delegates and biden delegates and the biden campaign so, so I'm just wondering, because you almost said it, but I'm going to say it, that these conventions are literally, they are pageants. And there's a, so much messaging that comes out of those pageants. And they're, with the virtual convention, the downside, maybe it's the upside, depends, on, on the ability of the voting public to compare the optics of what's going on with 
those two very different conventions. So I don't know if you see that there's a, a, it's a net gain or a loss that that kind of juxtaposition of these two conventions and their conduct is going to translate into political and public voting engagement for the general election. Yeah, I think a lot of people, there's a tendency, you know, I always, uh, it's, uh, like like a lot of people say, especially political activists will say that uh, people are apathetic when it comes to politics. I think they're deeply cynical when it comes to politics, and they've got good reason to be, because so much of our politics in, in America is just bought and paid for. But I see the natural opposite of money in politics being the people. How can you rouse interest? How can you engage voters and get them out to the polls? And so that's what I think these conventions have the ability to do. I wouldn't be involved in it at all in going to a convention and, and doing all of these, these online meetings now and stuff if I didn't think they could make a difference. And okay. so the difference that I'm hoping for is that it will engage people to think about the issues, think about who's really on their side. And like I say, there's no greater example than the current public health emergency in COVID-19 uh, right now to, I think, help voters decide, is it worth it to mail in my vote-by-mail ballot for uh, one party or the other, I think really is, is speaking for me. So Dr. Bill, to what extent are those virtual sessions you're already having, how open are they? Could, could anybody attend those or is there a way that it's sort of closed by numbers and invitation and all that. How, just how much could the general public, for the purpose of engaging people, getting a little look at, it's not like making a sausage in the legislative process, but there's a little sausage making in conventions. That's right. So I think it remains to be seen how the committee, the Democratic National Committee, decides to air the convention this time. You know, as you can, usually it's kind of primetime TV and and they depend on the networks to, to air this stuff. So how yeah. is that going to be aired? You know, it's going to be on YouTube or Facebook Live. You know, that's a good question. We, we don't really know. And I, I think they haven't figured that out altogether yet. But what I can tell you is that, you know, at the kind of the, what we call the grassroots level or okay. populist level is that these things are very approachable. I mean, you can engage, uh, for example, you know, with the two groups that I organized for, Progressive Democrats, pdamerica.org is our website. Click on that, click join, get on our announcement list, come to our meetings online. Uh, we'd love to have your involvement at uh, PDA. PNHP, Physicians for National Health Program, you don't have to be a physician. A lot of non-physicians are involved in that. So if healthcare, and moving to a single-payer, universal healthcare expanded and improved Medicare for all system, PNHP is very available. Our local Democratic Party generally is very available. You can engage, you can call the local Democratic Party, Orange County Democratic Party and our, our various clubs, and that gets your foot in the door to state Democratic politics and you know, eventually national Democratic Party politics to whatever extent they're going to allow it. Again, kind of all bet are off with the uh, processes uh, this year because of the pandemic, but we'll see. So that's the political institutional kind of take you're giving us. I'm going to put you in the hot seat, Dr. Bill. You as a retired emergency room physician, you are a healthcare and a public health official in that sense. I'd like for you to address how you feel 
the institutional response from the University of California, Irvine has been to the pandemic as it unfolds? Well, I think uh, overall, our, our colleges, universities, uh, schools in general uh, recognized early on that a congregate living situation, certainly like say college and university dormitories, they're a lot like prisons or detainment centers or barracks and, and military barracks um, are, are extremely dangerous public health uh, contagion situation. But then we realize as well that even classrooms where you have coming together uh, people in excess of, of a couple of dozen, maybe 30, 40, 50 people. Inside. A lecture hall. Yeah, it's extremely dangerous, uh, you know, especially inside, but maybe even outside. And if there, there is not uh, sufficient practicing of, you know, wearing masks and social distancing. The good news is our schools and institutions of higher learning are just that. They have higher learning. So therefore, they, they know uh, the science of these things, the science behind public health measures, and we're very uh, careful, and I think, you know, early on even, to uh, exercise those options uh, for safety of their, uh, not just their students, but also their staff. Unfortunately, we're seeing in local politics now, you know, some of local institutions, even uh, governmental type uh, leaders of school districts and school boards are not willing to go along with that science-based approach to dealing with it. So that's kind of the downside. You do have political influence on those institutions that can actually, you know, push the public into a more dangerous situation again. That we all have to be extremely careful extremely worried about. So I'm, I'm looking closely at how very high profile leaders within UC Irvine, how they present, whether it's in, let's say, an internal webinar or in the media and how they're responding. I don't know if you want to take a temperature of the kind of comportment of alarm that they have or the lack of it. I want you to evaluate their role, their performance in that respect, Dr. Bill, is our last question for today. Well, I probably don't follow UCI practices specifically well enough to, to, I I think, to give you the answer that you want. But I would say generally, look at who's saying what. And if what they're saying makes sense from those voices that you're hearing in the community, that are calling for more care, more concern, more conservative even in their approach, their public health approach. Those are the ones that we should be listening to. We all know that there's been kind of a second peak to our first peak in uh, Orange County, as well as a lot of states around the country, probably because social environments were opened, again, too quickly or too carelessly. So you want to listen to those more conservative, more careful voices in this situation that are saying uh, it, it's, a, it's a smarter thing really to, uh, to open up uh, social settings more slowly. And when we do see evidence like we have that, uh, that you know, the disease is getting worse in, in the community, then we need to be able to reimpose those restrictions to get control of the situation 
Well, I thank you for giving us that as well. I want to thank you for giving us this full hour to look at what is the potential to rethink what healthcare delivery could be in this country from somebody who's been in this very long game of grassroots activism, Dr. Bill Honeyman. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, it's my pleasure. And I would just uh, wish all of your listeners to uh, stay safe and stay healthy throughout this period and, and stay engaged and be sure to vote in November and uh, support those candidates who you think are, are standing up for what you believe in. I guess it's time to start saying November 3, so nobody can say they didn't know that was the date. I guess we're now in, in this port, part of July, we can start getting that little mantra up and running. That's right. Okay, That's well, thank you so much. Dr. Bill Honigman was my guest today. He's a retired emergency physician in Orange County and healthcare activist with the Progressive Democrats of America packing his virtual briefcase to go from his one room to his other office to attend the virtual convention of the National Democrats August 17th to August 20th that will be housed in Milwaukee. Thanks again, Dr. Bill. Thank you, Claudia. It's a pleasure to be back with you. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, Rick Hassan, UCI Law School professor and author, will return to talk about what we need to be aware of in this electoral season since his early winter release of his book entitled Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust and the Threat to American Democracy. Our current health catastrophe in the U.S. makes everything he's anticipated all the more unwieldy. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Everyone gets a gold star for masking up.